portion of scripture that we're going to look at this morning is 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you have a Bible, um, I would encourage you to open it. If you don't, there are Bibles under the seat, um, just above your feet. So in the beginning of that Bible is a table of contents. It has all of the different uh, books of the Bible and what pages they can be found on. And so we are in a book of the Bible called 1 Corinthians. It was a letter written by one who was an eyewitness to Jesus after he was raised from the dead, the Apostle Paul, written to a local church just like ours in a city named Corinth. Uh, This Apostle Paul had been sent by Jesus to preach the gospel, to preach the news of Jesus' death and resurrection in this city. And when he preached it, many believed. A church was established there, and he was the first pastor there for a long time. He then moved on to other cities to preach the same gospel and establish other churches. And now he's writing this letter back to them because this church had turned away from the truth of God's word in many ways. And so he's writing as a father, correcting his children. Uh, This should be fairly familiar to you. You were once children in your parents' houses, or you've had children, and um, sometimes when the parents are gone, as the saying goes, right, when the cat's away, the mice will play. And so while Paul's away, they had turned back to very destructive ways. And as a good father... Paul writes to put them back on the right way. And one of the main things we'll deal with in this chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, is the fear of death. Fear of death. We, especially in our culture, but this is true of humanity over all time, we're rather focused on the here and now. We live for what we can see, what we can taste, what we can touch. We're physical people with physical bodies. We also have souls and spirits. We live body and soul. But because we can't see, taste, touch the spiritual, we tend to live as if it's not a thing. We're materialists. This is especially true in our culture. This is why the doctrine of evolution That there is no creator. That God didn't speak creation into existence, but just it kind of happened in a Big Bang explosion and it evolved over the billions of years. That's appealing to us in our flesh because we want an answer for how this all came to be and we deny God, we deny the spiritual, and so we tend towards that which is just material. And so we live just for the material. Which means we do all that we can do to deny that one day we'll die. We fear death. We think there's nothing after life and so all that there is is life. So we hold on to this life and we live it trying to deny what is facing all of us, death. But we know that's wrong. You know that's wrong. Deep in your bones... If you're willing, even now, to consider what I'm saying, the idea that you'll one day die is terrifying. 
fearful. And the reason that we fear it is because we know that we will have to give an account to our creator. That's where that fear comes from. Because God has created you to know him, to honor him, to give him thanks for all that he's done, and you know you haven't, that you've offended him in many ways, and you know that after death, you'll give an account. And so death is fearful. It's terrifying. And so in death, you must alone face God. I was thinking this morning, reading, if you were to, for whatever reason, maybe a job or just a whim, decide to leave this country, leave everybody behind that you know and love, leave your home, your family, your friends, and go to an entirely different country, the different language and a different culture and where you knew no one, a foreign place where it's just you and God. That's a death. It'll just be you and God in that moment. So what's the solution? It's Christ. We know that there's life after death Because we see it everywhere around us. We go to sleep every night, death. We wake up, resurrection. We go through seasons. Winter is death. Spring and summer is resurrection, life. Many of us garden. You have trays with soil and seeds in them sprouting right now. Seeds are dead. From them comes resurrection, life. Christians have for all time planted the bodies of their beloved dead ones in the ground. We've buried them. Why? Because we know that they're seeds that will rise again because Christ rose. Resurrection has been implanted in all of creation by God to communicate to you there is life after death. Life either immortal with him in heaven or apart from him in death. And so the only solution to your fear is Christ's death and resurrection. He died to deal with our sin. He allows us to be honest about our sin. We don't have to hide it. We don't have to seek out our own kind of atonements. We don't have to be dominated and owned by our sin. We can confess. We can receive forgiveness. We can receive life from the dead because Christ died and rose. Hell is real. And it is for those without faith in Christ. But by God's mercy, he chose to send his son. His son did come. His son did live without sin. God placed the sins of his people on his son who made sacrifice for them all on the cross. His son was raised from the dead so that all who hope in him may have true and eternal hope. And that's true. Now where do we hear of this? news. We hear it in the Bible. And so I'm going to read 
a section of scripture from 1 Corinthians 15. If you have your Bibles open, why don't you follow along with me, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'm going to read a bit of a lengthier section, verses 1 to 33. Now I would remind you, brothers, that term brothers there indicates that through faith in Christ, because Christ is the Son of God, those who have faith are brothers of Christ and also sons of God. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel, the good news I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas or Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep or died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me is not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than all of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached, and so you believed. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain and our faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God. Because we, uh, lost my place. Because we testified that God, about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits. Then it is coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus the Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humans speaking, I fought beasts at Ephesus, if the dead are not raised? 
Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Let's pray. God, please deliver what I preach here in the power of your Holy Spirit and love. And so God, give us ears to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, why is Paul writing what he wrote here? Some within the church have begun to lie and deceive others that there is no resurrection from the dead. We see this in verse 12. Now, if, the, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? Now, some of you might say, how does he know that Christ was raised from the dead? Well, if you go up just a little before that, in uh, verses 5 through 7, Jesus died publicly. There were hundreds and hundreds of eyewitnesses to this fact. It's historical reality that Jesus Christ was crucified on a cross. He died and was buried. Three days later, he rose from the dead. And that resurrection is based on eyewitness testimony. He names Cephas, Peter. He names the 12 disciples. He names more than 500 people that Jesus appeared to at one time. And then he has this little note. Most of whom are, at, are still alive. Why does he say that? Why does he give that little editorial note? Why does that detail matter? Because if they wanted, those to whom Paul is writing wanted, they could go interview him. And it's not just one guy. It's not just two. It's not somebody who had a vision. It's real living people. At one time, more than 500 of which actually saw Jesus Christ raised after he had been died and buried. And then he names James, all the rest of the apostles, and then Paul himself. So some, though, were denying this his historical reality. Some Jews denied that there is any resurrection from the dead, this group called the Sadducees. And then sophisticated, Greek-speaking, non-Jewish people who were too cool, too scientific, too sophisticated to believe in such a fairy tale that somebody could be raised after they had died. Isn't that just like our day? People who are in the know, who are cool kids, who believe in science, do not believe such things that after somebody dies, they can be brought back from the dead. That's what's happening here. And so the church, wanting to be accepted by the world, begins to deny that which the world thinks is silly, an old wives' tale. Something that educated adults don't believe. That's true in a sense. You, you can choose your own intelligence, your own 
education and deny this, but you're simply proving that you're capable of denying what is real, what is historical fact. But Christ did rise. It was testified in Scripture that he would. Hundreds of eyewitnesses saw him. And then over the 2,000 years since then, billions of people in every culture, of every language, scientific fact. And so our faith is a well-founded faith. As I said, it's revealed in Scripture. Psalm 1610 said before that God would not let his holy one see decay. In Matthew 16:21, Jesus himself foretold that he would die and three days later rise. He said it several times. And then, of course, we have these eyewitness testimonies that all agree with each other. And then, as I've said, even in nature, we see resurrection all over the place. Many of you have the own, your own internal testimony that this is true, right? You've come to believe and to base all of your hope for your past sins, your present realities, and future eternal life on this one fact that Christ has been raised from the dead. But as I've said, we find this reality unbelievable. Because we live for the here and now. We won't consider eternity. This very apostle said in another place, that he would do whatever needed to be done in order to attain the resurrection of the dead. Is that your life? Are you willing to admit that there is life after death? Can you agree with me that if there is such a thing as life after death, there is nothing more important than you figuring out what's going to happen to me after I die? Can, can you allow yourself even now to consider this reality? That you will live for some time on this earth. Often people are surprised at how short it's going to be. And that after death, there is eternity That being created in God's image means that you have an eternal soul. That you will exist forever. And it will either be gladly accepted by your creator into his life with him and all of his people forever in glory and beauty and joy that is unspeakable, unimaginable. Or you will exist apart from him under his judgment forever in a place of awful fear and pain and misery forever. Can you let yourself consider that? And do you have assurance that you will be with God? But as I've said, we're materialists. We live for the here and now. 
parents do this with their kids, right? You are focused mainly on preparing your child for success in this world. We see this with athletics. Parents drive their kids hours, spend thousands of dollars focusing on preparing them to be good basketball players or tennis players or maybe it's music. And that's not a bad focus, but it becomes the sole all-consuming thing that you'll rearrange all of your family life, center your family's budget around, you invest your heart and soul into it, and communicate to your child, there is no life after death. This is it. You have to have a success here. We do this in ourselves, maybe at our vocations. We invest ourselves, pour ourselves into our work or maybe into a hobby because we can't conceive that there's life after death and this is all. And we want to prepare for retirement. We want to have enough funds so that we can live comfortably and enjoy those last years of whatever we have without any regard for eternal life. Maybe it's nutrition for you. You focus so much on eating well and eating right. It's a good thing. But just to take care of this body that you know will not last. And and you have no care for your soul. Maybe it's just about finding the right spouse. Whatever it is, we prove to ourselves over and over again that we deny that there is resurrection. We deny that there is life after death. Why are you here? I don't mean here, here. I mean here on earth. God made everything, including you, for himself, for his glory. And you, mankind, are the pinnacle of his creation. He made all of this for us to enjoy in right relationship to him. But we've sinned. Look at verse 21 and 22, verses 21 and 22. As by a man came death. Who's that man? He names him in verse 22, Adam, the first man that God created, sinned in rebellion against God. And because of sin, death came. We in Adam all die. That death there means separation from God. We have not the union, the communion, the fellowship with God that we were made for because we're separated by Adam's sin. And so we deserve this death. We deserve this judgment. It is appointed to man once to die and then to face judgment. This is terrifying. But God provided redemption. Why? Well, to show what kind of a God he is. That he is compassionate. And he was not willing to judge all of his creation and send us away from him, but would send his son 
And so far from being unmerciful, turned to us in mercy, in our need, and sent his son to judge him in our place for our sins. And so by death, or by one man came death, so by one man has come resurrection from the dead, and that man is Jesus Christ. Who is Jesus? Well, he's the eternal God. He is God, fully and in every way. And at a point in history, he became man. He was born of a virgin. He is like us in every way, except he never sinned. He didn't have the nature of sin. He is fully God and fully man in one person. He lived 30 plus years on this earth, always obeying God. And God gave him life, a body, so that he could represent us. Like Adam once represented all of us, Christ represents all of us. Unlike Adam who disobeyed, unlike you disobeyed, Christ obeyed for you. And at the end of his life, his highest act of obedience was submitting to become the sacrifice to pay the penalty for your sins. He suffered the most awful, painful, humiliating death on a cross, suffering the wrath of God that we deserved for our sin. He took it instead. After a short while of suffering on that cross, he died. His physical life ended. He breathed the last. His heart stopped. The Roman soldiers, wanting to test that he's dead, shoved a spear up into his chest, piercing his heart. He was dead without life. He was buried, placed in a tomb, sealed with a stone. And three days later, he was raised from the dead. The first to see him raised from the dead were several of his women followers who then ran and told the, the men who followed him who also saw him. He then appeared, as we've read, to more than 500 people at one time. After that, to a larger group of his followers. And then finally to the author of this letter, Paul. And the heart of Christianity is this. There is resurrection from the dead because Christ rose first. And all who have faith, who believe that this is true, that Christ is who I just said he is, and that he did what I just said he did, rose from the dead, will once rise with him. This is the source of all hope. But it is to be received by faith. Paul makes this very clear. 15.1, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached, which you received... It must be received as a gift. There's nothing you can do to earn it. There's nothing you can do to get God to give it to you. It just simply must be received by faith with thanks. And so have you received it? Do you believe? If not, what's keeping you from it? Are you willing to look at the reality of your 
coming death and what will happen afterwards. And so our faith is in Christ. He alone conquered that which is most terrifying to us. He beat death. He beat it from the inside. He went into death, into the grave, and by his unstoppable power, walked out. This is the source of all hope in this world. Hope that all of your past wrongs can be forgiven. Comfort that all of those that you loved who have passed on, who loved Christ, had faith in him, will be raised to eternal life. Hope in all of the difficulties and miseries. It's hope that motivates our love for others. It's hope for you facing death. I have been by the bedside of many who have passed. I've been by the bedside of those who have died without faith in Christ. And I've been by the bedside of those who have passed with faith in Christ. And there is no greater difference. When I was a pastoral intern training to be a pastor, the church I was working at got a call from an uncle of a man dying in La Crosse, Wisconsin. He had been calling churches to see if somebody would go visit his uncle. And since I was the intern, I drew the assignment. He was an older man, had terminal cancer, was in real pain. He was in a nursing home, no family, no friends. He had no hope in Christ. When I came into his room, he turned up the TV volume. He was yelling at nurses. He was angry and bitter. And so I shouted to him the truth of Christ. I left some literature explaining what Christ did and then made my exit, just praying for him, having no hope at all. Told him I would come back and visit. I never got to come back and visit. He died a few days later. Um, but I, when I had gone back and learned that he had, had died, the nurses said, whatever you told him utterly changed him. He was completely kind to the nurses towards the last few days of his life. He had a complete transformation. It appears that having to face death, he trusted in Christ and had hope for life beyond the grave. This is what Christ came to give you, hope for death. Prayer is that you would accept it as many of us have. Let's pray. Lord, we do humbly and gratefully praise you that your Son has accomplished that which we cannot life after death. Pray that you would grant faith to those who have none, that you would humble those who, in their pride, refuse thinking themselves wiser and better, knowing more, that they would humble themselves before you. Let those who do have faith would be given peace as they face death, as they look to beyond the grave, and even more so that you would give us love for those who have yet to know it. And so, God, we give you glory for your son's life, death, and resurrection, and now reign over all things and soon coming. In Jesus' name.
Amen. The charge is this. Make a renewed commitment with, com- with prayer and dependence on God to tend to your spiritual life. You do well, I think, probably taking, trying to take care of your physical life, your financial life, but what about your soul? Don't neglect your body, but even more so, don't neglect your soul. Seek the Lord. Draw near to him in prayer and scripture and gathering with the saints. We want you to be with God forever in heaven. And it's more than just praying a prayer. It's more than just attending church a couple times a year. Come to God through faith in Christ and have a renewed commitment to seeking him. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Amen.